Tess Gundy grew up in the Rust Belt, South Bend, Indiana specifically. Later, as an aspiring writer, she realized she had never actually read a book set in the Rust Belt. But around the time I was kind of 20, 21, I started to realize that the absence of this fiction was a very good reason to contribute some. So she set her first novel in South Bend, and it won a National Book Award. This week, we revisit a conversation Violet Barron had with Tess Gunty about the Midwest, social class, and women being protagonists of their own lives. But first, a chat Avi Forrest had with comedian Mohanad El Sheikhi about comedy and trauma. That's all coming up after this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is The Interstate Show. I'm Avraham Forrest, and tonight's guest is comedian Mohanad El Sheikhi, with musical guests from Universal Production. Avi, U- what are you doing? Nothing. Nothing. Just recording recording audio for the comedian story, the, the intro for the comedian story. Uh, okay, cool. Go ahead. Tonight on the Interstate Show, I'm Abraham Forrest, and our first guest is Mohanad El Sheikhi. He's had his own TED Talk. He's been on Comedy Central and some smaller shows like Conan, but now he's finally here. So please welcome to the stage Mohanad El Sheikhi. Especially in the entertainment industry, people love to just like give you a label and just be like, be this guy. Like you're like, you're the trauma guy, you're like what, whatever guy, you're like the immigrant guy, uh, because it's easier for them to package it and sell it as a product, because that's how they see you, it's just, you're just a product. Hey there, and welcome to The Comedians, a series about comedians. This time we're talking about Conan, trauma, and what it's like making jokes when you're happy. Please welcome, making his television debut with us this evening, the very funny Mohanad El Sheikhi. What was it like on Conan? Oh, that was that was fantastic. Uh, I mean, I would say like the first thirty seconds were kind of like you know I wasn't sure yet because you. Before you get your first laugh, you're not sure how that is going to go because it's a different setup. You have, like, five cameras, like, just pointed at you. You have, like, an audience at 4 p.m. You have Conan and Andy just, like, sitting, like, not too far from you. So it's kind of like, you know, that's not my everyday setup when I'm doing stand-up. And I also have five minutes. And it's TV, so I can't really, like, riff. I can't, like, really, like, go back and, like, say something again. But overall, I loved it. I loved it so much. I thought it went way, way better than I expected it to be. And also, like, you know, Conan and the staff and everyone was, like, very, like, nice and supportive. And, like, you know, they let you know what to do uh, beforehand and where to look and all of that stuff. And they're like, hey, we'll, you know, this is going to go great. So yeah, I felt like I, I felt like I was very like well prepared for it. Even though the process of itself of getting on Conan took so long. I think it took like over a year of just like back and forth and just like talking and like working on like the set and like arranging stuff and like maybe sometimes I'm like, oh I have this joke, new joke that I wanna try instead of this one. Growing up, or just in your life in general, 
Who were your influences? Um, who were your comedic influences? Comedic influences. I mean, honestly, like I, when I first started like tuning into comedy, I didn't even watch it. I remember like my my friend gave me like a flash drive that had like MP3 like uh, recordings on it. So that some of the comedians, I don't even remember who they are. I just remember just like listening to them and just liking the form of stand up and and all of that stuff. I remember like one of the first people I seen is just like Russell Peters, for example, just because he had like so many like videos on YouTube and, and, and stuff. I, I mean, a lot of the people I wouldn't call them like influences, you just like were like my intro to knowing what stand up is. And I've watched like some like deaf comedy jam and all of that. And uh, just to know what, you know, what the form was. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I can't like say that I have like specific people I can name in my mind about like, who are the influences, just the collective in general. So w- what is your sort of um, vibe as a comedian? <laughs> My vibe is that I'm just very dry on stage. I'm originally from uh, Libya, which is a place that shows up if you Google it. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm very dry. I'm very, like, kind of like, I, w- I wouldn't call it sarcastic, but kind of like that way. And I love doing a lot of, like, building throughout my set like you know just so i can like do callbacks and 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 all of that stuff and i wouldn't call it like observational humor though even though like it is in a sense and i was driving my car and i got stopped at a checkpoint and one thing you need to know about libya back then that was mostly controlled by like religious like extremist militias and then they searched my car up and down and then one of them looked at me and he was like well who the fuck are you but yeah, I mean, once I'm on stage, I'm like, I just try to be like as confident as I could be. And what are you doing here? And I was like, well, to be fair, I do ask myself the same question every morning. <laughs> so I get it, bro. And it's very intellectual. It's very political, which is, um, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a rarity, but I would say it takes some finesse to pull off. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, it's it's easy when I am in like New York, L.A. or like even Bloomington, you know, because uh, you do have a lot of people like who already agree with you. So but sometimes they go to part of the country like I'm in North Carolina. I'm like whatever. And it's it's you are not guaranteed to have a lot of people like who politically align with you or not as progressive as you are and all of that stuff. So. I want to think, say it takes convincing because it's not really, I'm not trying to convince them of anything, but it takes, you know, like a different like arrangement and maybe like starting like, you know, not going on like all heavy at first and just kind of like taking them in like slowly. Have you guys seen opinions lately? Yeah, they're really bad. Uh, and I also have opinions, but they're like good. So even when you are not, you're saying stuff that they maybe don't agree with in their everyday lives, they're still like, will listen and think it's funny and just, like, enjoy it. When you're performing, would you say that you're a different person? Yes. Yeah, I mean, once I'm, once I'm on stage, I am... Uh, it doesn't matter what's happening in my life at that moment. You know, like, literally the worst thing could happen an hour before the show, and then I can go on stage and just, like, get into the mindset and everything else, you know, I just put on the side. And I'm also, like, you know... I know what I'm doing on stage. I'm very confident on stage. I have confidence on stage that I don't, I don't have in my everyday life. Because like, I know exactly what I have to offer and I know exactly how things will work. So it's like very like, it's 90% planned, which I like planning and I like knowing where I'm taking stuff. So yeah, I feel like I'm on, on stage, I'm like a whole different person. Like sometimes I wish I am that person who's on stage Always, because that would make my life so much easier. Offset. Would you say people um, think you're a funny person? I hope they do. Because I am, I am on stage how I am off stage. So I put my opinion out there and I believed in everything I said until that guy, until that guy, uh, Kevin, replied to me. Do you guys know Kevin? From social media? You know, I talk the same way, I communicate the same way. So I believe that people think that. And I mean, like, I mean, that's the reason I started doing comedy is because people kept telling me that I should do this on stage, whatever it is that I am doing in conversation. Yeah, he's there. Uh, 
Yeah, Kevin replied to me, and this is what Kevin said. His reply was amazing, it was like poetry. He replied and said, You fucking Muslim, I eat bacon 24 7. And I was like, Wow, what a hateful haiku! That's so cool. Why do you think people kept saying you should do comedy? I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like a lot of people do get that, though. You know, like someone who's like funny at their like office or something. Like, oh my god, you should do, you should totally do stand-up comedy, even though they shouldn't. I mean, I think people just, yeah, just thought I, I, I had some like has something to say or like the way I deliver stuff is more like fits within the uh, structure of stand-up comedy because there are so many ways to be funny but there are very specific ways to be funny in within the stand-up comedy world I've heard the sentiment that a lot of comedy is based on sort of like bearing yourself to an audience a lot of like trauma to an audience uh, would you yeah. agree with that um, I mean, in a sense, yeah. I mean, some of it is is deeply personal and, and all of that stuff. And I have stuff that are like more like, you know, hard to talk about and all of that stuff. And I have to kind of like figure out how to do it in a way where it doesn't feel like... And, and I mean, also like, you know, it's it's the it's a cliche of like uh, comedy plus time. When something like bad happens, I, I try not to talk about it on stage immediately because it's not... There's so many like emotions still attached to it. So you're not far enough from it to talk about it yet. But I, I'd also say that I have never written better jokes than when I was just happy. Because I feel like the uh, stigma of stand-up, is, especially like with newer comics and, 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 and all of that, is that somehow you have to be like miserable and you have to have like you know you're really going through it for the sake of art and like for the sake of just like uh kind of like this like van gogh like syndrome where people just have to feel like they have like to be like this tortured soul in order to make like content and i'm just like no you don't have to be that you can like be happy and still like make good observations and maybe talk about painful stuff and from the past and all of that but it it doesn't have to come on the expense of your like mental health and just uh and you don't have to feel like you have to keep like suffering and going through it just in like for the sake of content i feel like that's just like something i would love to see uh gone from the stand-up comedy world because it's just not not you know not fun for for anyone involved And I guess with that in mind, what is your process of writing jokes, of making a set? I mean, the initial process is like, you know, so like it's a lot of the, these jokes like really just come up with like conversation with like other like friends and stuff like that. You know, like I would be telling them a story or I'd be telling them like or so, like something would come up in mind and they laugh at it. And I just like just take my phone out and kind of like make a take the notes app on and just like write like write a quick note just kind of like to remind me to think about it more later. So, uh, and then what I do is I don't really like, uh, I'm not a person who like sits down and write or, you know, opens like a notebook and just like start writing and all of that. I don't really know how to do that. And it's not my, something I enjoy. So I, what I do is like, I really just like take like these long, like walks every day in the city. And I just talk to myself out loud where I imagine myself just like being on stage and I just like kind of like perform it that way. So by the time I am on stage, I have performed it enough times that it just doesn't feel like new to me anymore. Usually when I have a bit at first, it's kind of like, it's always like kind of longish. So, you know, it's always like three minutes because you have all of that like extra stuff that you're like not sure if it's funny or not, or like you're not sure how to like get rid of uh but you know i keep like I, I i would do the joke over and over again and like every time i would like you know change the structure make it shorter make it shorter and like see what people laugh at and then eventually i uh i don't think the a joke really gets to its final form ever until like you tape it for something or like put it on a special so i always like keep changing stuff and sometimes you know sometimes you have an idea you really like 
and you try it on stage multiple times and it just doesn't work even though you think it's funny but then i just put it on the side and sometimes a year from from when i tried it i finally figured out how to do it you know like i have another joke that just like fits in well with it or like i have a story that this would be a good tag for so you know like i never really like get rid of stuff i just like put them on the side and eventually find a way to like repurpose them like i have jokes from like three years ago that i literally just started doing again now because i figured out how to do them it's time for a break we're listening to a conversation producer Avi Forrest had with comedian Mohanad El Sheikhi last summer, before he came to town for the Limestone Comedy Festival. When we come back, we'll hear more about turning traumatic experiences into jokes. One takeaway? Don't rush it. We'll be right back. Interstates, Alex Chambers. Let's get back to Avi Forrest's conversation with comedian Mohanad El Sheikhi. For those things that are um, are based on sort of those more, more negative experiences, what's it like turning negative material into comedy? Uh, I mean, it feels good just like seeing stuff out loud, you know, sharing them with people and like actually like being able to talk because like once once it's funny it's not it doesn't feel scary anymore it doesn't feel like as bad it's still bad but it's not as bad once you can like make fun of it and i get to a point where like i start telling these stories and it feels like i'm telling i'm talking about like another person who's not me like so you feel like you're like separate from it somehow you're like just watching from the outside uh, so it does it does help kind of like you know help you like get get over it but in the same sense i would say that you know i don't i don't think of stage as like therapy because uh, i i know comedians love saying that comedy is their therapy and i'm just like i don't think therapy is therapy and maybe you should people should <laughs> do that instead because you know i'm like i'm the audience is there to enjoy their time and have a good time they probably got babysitters for like the kids and and all of that stuff and i'm not gonna just go up and like use them as a way to process my emotions uh, so there has to be a balance there, you know, like you, you should be able to talk about whatever you want to talk about, but at the same time, you know, do it in a way that does not make people just, you know, not enjoy it because you clearly not, you know, you haven't processed it on the outside world yet. A lot of your work um, brings up arguably important topics and important perspectives. Mm-hmm. And um, and honestly, I would argue that uh, humor can be activism. It's easier to do it within stand-up comedy because it's kind of like packaged in this like jokes and stuff like that. So like people are like more able to listen to them and they can relate to you and, and, and all of that stuff. And like humor, may, I mean, humor does humanize you more. So in a sense yes it is it is it can be like a form of a form of activism i'm saying like but i say at the same point i'm 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 kind of like in the mindset of like my goal is to make people laugh to make them enjoy the show and everything good that comes out of comes out of like on the sides is i'm glad if a positive change happens but i can't say that like i sit down and write jokes and be like oh this is my this is what I want to have because you ne- you never control you can never control how people take your material and jokes and like how they understand them and how it resonates with them. Sometimes you have a joke that has like a a really big impact on someone, and sometimes it's just a funny joke that they remember. So you can't really like you know control that. You just hope for the best when you write them. Uh, one last thing, I, I I had this really terrible thing happen to me a few months ago. Uh, I was doing comedy in the uh, city of Spokane, Washington. Yeah, one person knows that place. <laughs> the rest of you, you don't need to. It sucks. The worst place on earth. It should be canceled. Honestly. More Can recently, you, um, yeah. you shared that experience about comedy, like uh, being city, taken off a bus white, by um, border patrol. Because why not? Uh, and then... After I finished my set, I got on the bus, the Greyhound bus, to go back to, to Portland, where I live, because I believe that the best art comes from torture, you know? 
And I was on the bus, everything is great. I'm just looking at my phone, just scrolling down. I'm like, I don't wonder what Kevin has been up to lately. <laughs> and then I see people wearing uniforms and they get on the bus and they start asking people questions. Uh, and then one of them looks at me and he's like, oh, you don't look like you're from here. Where are you from? Can we see your papers and everything you have? And let's step outside of the bus. And then I learned that these people were uh, border patrol. And it's obviously very disgusting because they asked me to step outside of the bus based on the way I looked. You know, they looked at me and they were like, this guy looks too handsome to be from Spokane. <laughs> like, like, he has most of his face. Like, And they, they looked at my papers and they're like, these papers look fake, they're easily falsified. And I was like, well, these papers have been given to me by you. So maybe do a better job, I don't know. That seems like a you problem at this point. Uh, and then they were like, okay, buddy, uh, one more thing. Uh, are, you, uh, are you from Oregon or Washington? And I was like, I support God. Uh, <laughs> And they were like, what does that mean? I was like, I don't know, man. That's how I talk to militias. And, uh, Are you ever afraid of being pigeonholed as a someone who has had that experience and just and people only want you to talk about that experience? Yeah, of course. I mean, you, you, you always feel that way. You're like, oh, this is the only thing people want to hear about and, and, and all of that stuff. And I get it because it's just like obviously a very like big event and, and all of that and sometimes sometimes people this is how people got to know me because this uh, story was like on the news and and all of that stuff but i think what helps me the most is just because i get to do a usually like a full hour of comedy or so i and people come see me so they get to see other stuff as well and uh, that greyhound story for example like is like a four or five minutes out of like a 60 minute set So uh, they get to see the other aspects of me, and like sometimes, like I don't even talk about myself. I just like have like ob like just silly observations about like other stuff that truly does not, you know, is not just just stuff that I think are funny. So I think it's just it kind of gives people like more of a way to see you as a uh, as a person, like who has like you know contains like you know contains you know multitudes and like is multifaceted and all of that stuff and and like more like them uh, than anything and as, as just like one story that you have but yeah it's you know it's always a fear and 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 especially in the entertainment industry people love to just like give you a label and just be like be this guy like you're like you're the trauma guy you're like what whatever guy you're like the immigrant guy uh, because it's easier for them to package it and sell it as a product because that's how they see you it's just you're just a product I think just because of how social media is now and like how there are so many ways to communicate with the audiences, there is more freedom now to uh, package yourself the way you want it, which is, you know, just as a person or whatever you want it to be. Seeing um, people of color and immigrants as not just their trauma and just this one thing that happened and seeing them fully and seeing like that they're just people. They're not like... Like you said, they're not machines for money. They're not like, like vehicles for traumatic stories. They are people. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. That's the that's the thing. Cause, the, and I mean, that's what one thing that stand up allows me to do. It it kind of like allows me to do like not just tell my story, but like talk about myself and like my personal life and all of that stuff, but on my own terms and not having to do it through the way like uh, people want me to do. You know? Yeah, yeah. And um, I am not um, an immigrant nor a person of color. I, I am trans, and I, and I sort of mm -hmm. identify with this concept of, like, yeah. I, I would feel weird if I was reduced to, like, my traumatic memories because I think, like, trans like transness is reduced to like the dysphoria yeah. and, and yeah and th there is joy within it and i'm really just a person um yeah exactly yeah exactly you just wanna you just want people to be people and that's the that's the that's the whole of it you know like whether you 
like especially if you're like someone who's like you know like supportive of like trans issues or like you are an ally to people of color and all of that stuff it shouldn't come on the expense of them having to relive like their trauma over and over again just to prove that they are uh people you know uh because people in general just deserve to be happy and just live their normal lives without like being reminded that they're like you know like different or need to do more work to be accepted or uh, or any of that stuff what are you afraid of most as a comedian i mean i mean the always the fear is always like you know like uh not connecting with the audience and like bombing and like i don't care if a joke bombs like one joke but like if the whole set is not going your way and you have to be up there for an hour, that is not great. And also, like, you know, it's not a fear. This is more of an inconvenience. But, you know, like you travel all the way to a city or something, but you do not get the turnout that you expected. So you're like, you know, you have this really great hour and maybe like 15 people show up out of like 100 or something. And you're like, well, I mean... It is what it is, and you just got to push through it. And always, like, especially, like, I guess that's a fear, like, an irrational one when you, like, have a writer's block and you're like, I don't think I can, like, come up with jokes anymore. That's it for me. What is something you haven't been able to achieve? I mean, I, I wouldn't say not able. I'm just, like, it's just a lot of these stuff just take time. Like, I would love to have my my own TV show, you know, uh, which is something I've been, like, working on and all of that stuff. It's just that... Stuff like that takes so long, and they take it's such a long process. So I wouldn't say like I wasn't able to achieve. It's more like I just wish it can be achieved quicker. And in my mind, I have a lot of like goals, and I have clear goals and, and all of that stuff. And I have confidence enough in myself that I know that they will happen eventually. It's a matter of like uh, when and not if. I, I just hate uh, having to wait for too long. What is something that you want people to know about you? I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's something I need people to know about me, but it's mostly like has to do with comedians in general. It's like just because you see someone on stage or you hear them on a podcast or something and you know so much about them, you shouldn't assume that you know them, I guess. Because sometimes, like, I would get, like, DMs on, on Instagram or whatever, and people, like, just because they hear you and they listen to you and stuff, they get too familiar, they get too comfortable. And it's like, uh, sorry, you don't know me that way. So sometimes, like, it's kind of, like, weird when when people, like, try to, like, you know... Because uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you know me, but maybe I don't know you in, in that sense. But if there's anything I want people to know about me, honestly, is that I have two cats and I love them so much. If I am to be pigeonholed into any label, is that I would be that I love my cats because I do not mind that. What are your cats' names? Uh, their names are uh, Tuna. Their names are Una and Tuni. Together, we I call them Tuna. Uh, and they're three years old and I love them so much. I think that's going to be the focal point of this interview, honestly. There'll be some minor notes. I, I would your work. not mind it. I literally would not mind it if you even put their name on the headline and not my name. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, the show is called Interstates, but it's going to be called The Tuna Show, like from now on. Perfect. Amazing. Yes, I love that. Thank you so much. Uh, of course. That's all I have for today. It was amazing meeting with you. I think your work is just so essential, and I love your comedy. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Comedian Mohanad Elshaki talking with Avi Forrest, who is still not the host of this show. But who knows what the future holds? Mohanad came to Bloomington as part of the Limestone Comedy Festival in June. Okay, let's take a break and then hear about what was probably the first ever novel set in Indiana to win a National Book Award, Tess Gunty's The Rabbit Hutch. If I'm wrong about that, you can let me know on Instagram at WFIU Interstates or through our website. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Here's producer Violet Barron talking last year with novelist Tess Gunty about her debut novel, The Rabbit Hutch, the Midwest, social class, and women being protagonists of their own lives. Tess Gunty's debut novel, The Rabbit Hutch, got significant critical acclaim when it came out last year. And I get why. It creates a world where each character is thoughtful and weird and chooses eccentricity over likability. It takes place in one apartment building where they all live out parallel lives, and that building is in the fictional Rust Belt town of Vaca Valley. Gunty modeled it in part on her own hometown, South Bend. The book's protagonist, Blandine, is young, smart, beautiful, and seemingly going nowhere. She exits her body on the very first page. We see her and her town through the eyes of both old-timers and newcomers throughout the book. And those interwoven stories explore themes of home, belonging, class, feminism, and the absurdities of life in our current moment. It also speaks honestly and devastatingly about what it's like to be a woman, or a girl just entering womanhood, in a world that seems to be taking as many steps backwards as forward. I spoke with Gunty via Zoom to hear some of her whys and hows behind the story. I've been writing for fun ever since I was really little. It was just something I enjoyed doing, and I continued doing it throughout high school and college. But I had never read a book that was set in the Rust Belt, and I think that when I was small, I internalized this narrative that the lives that happen there, the the narratives that happen there are not worthy of attention, of, of external attention. And I think it took me a very long time to understand the particular danger of that message. I think when you believe that the narratives around you and within you don't matter, um, you're divested of, of political will and creative will. But around the time I was kind of 20, 21, I started to realize that the absence of this fiction was a very good reason to contribute some. Yeah, you bring up this sort of political aspect to this right away. And I'm curious if you see this book as part of that raft of stories we got in the last five plus years, like Educated, you know, Hillbilly Elegy, maybe even The Glass Castle, these personal and family-oriented stories about working-class white communities that we don't hear about as much. Hmm. I, I haven't actually read either of those books, but I suppose I was I started writing this book the year I moved to Brooklyn, um, and I think I needed about a year of distance, at least from my home, in order to start to see it more clearly. And one thing that came to me during that time was um, a new sense of kind of protectiveness and tenderness toward the place that I don't think I could feel free to experience until I was free of it. And I did notice that there was a a dismissal of this region that I think I felt when I lived there, but I never saw it up close until I was out of it. And I saw, um, you know, I was in more elite communities on, in, coast, in coastal cities. And I think that it was partly the frustration of, of encountering that dismissal that motivated me to write. I mean, I remember going to, I had already been writing the book for a bit, but I went to see a performance of Bolero the New York Philharmonic. And I sat next to this woman who was in furs and she sort of looked like she'd never left Manhattan. When she asked where I was from, I said, Indiana. And she gasped and she said, mm. I didn't know anyone was from Indiana. <laughs> Did you turn the lights out when you left? And it was the most cartoonish version of an attitude that I think I encountered in much more subtle ways um, mm -hmm. here and there. Not to say that I think this is like the pinnacle of oppression. I just think it, it was interesting to me to encounter the dismissal. Yeah, that sense of place and how different people respond to it is so palpable in the story. And I'm curious how place sort of acts as a device. You know, the character Moses comes to Vaca Valley and he's sort of responding to the smallness or small timeness of it. And now, you know, you've lived in these big places, right? Like New York and L.A. Actually, my story is the opposite, right? I came from New York to Indiana. So in your mind, how is the placeness of Vaca Valley operating in the story? I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to set it in a fictional city was that I think if I had set it in my my real hometown or any other city in the Rust Belt, like Gary, Indiana, Flint, Michigan, Youngstown, Ohio, all of which influenced uh, Vacaville tremendously, I would feel immobilized by the task of doing it justice or creating a, an objectively true portrait of the place. I think precisely because there are so few narratives that are you know, visible on a national scale about these places that I'd feel tremendous pressure to be 
perfectly accurate in every possible way. And I knew that was that was just impossible for me. So studying in a fictional city allowed me to treat place more as a kind of atmospheric challenge rather than a a transcription challenge. And what I was trying to evoke most strongly was this kind of purgatorial atmosphere that I encountered in my city and then any other city that I that I visited that had a similar history. I would feel that sensation of the afterlife of a kind of waiting afterlife um, and interland between realms that was so palpable in in all of these places really it was the effort was to evoke the emotional sensation um, and then of course I pulled on things that were real some things I made up but but that was the main relationship I had with with uh, creating a place yeah, it's super interesting. The idea of the place as a sort of purgatory or purgatorial moment, you know, right, maybe between what it was when the factories and the companies were really strongly present and what it will be or, you know, what new commerce might come, you know. And did you feel that growing up in the state? Absolutely. I mean, I remember I didn't really learn much about the automobile company. And in, in South Bend's case, um, it was home to Studebaker Automobiles for about 100 years, and then they abruptly closed in the 1960s. That was about 30 years before I was born. And my family wasn't from South Bend. They had moved there from elsewhere. In its heyday, Studebaker was the largest car manufacturing facility in America, but I didn't, I didn't know that. What I did know was that I felt extremely haunted uh, from childhood onward by something. And I, didn't, and I, I saw it everywhere. It wasn't just in my household. It was it was everywhere I looked. And when I, w- I went to Catholic school and when I was maybe 11 or so, the, the teacher, this religion teacher told us, she introduced us to the idea of purgatory for the first time. And she described it as a place of indefinite waiting and eternal longing and unquenchable thirst. And she said that you would never know how long you're going to stay there. And, um, and pretty much everyone went there, she said. <laughs> and, and so she made us memorize this prayer to like liberate a thousand souls or something every day from from purgatory and she would keep a tally of all the souls that that we had liberated and so the whole the whole exercise was fairly absurd but it was also um when she was describing this afterlife i thought i recognize this place and i feel like we're already there and it kind of it gave a term to all of the longing the waiting this no man's land uh that I saw it was both emotionally and geographically in terms of the landscape, the architecture, but also in people's expressions and postures. No, that's very cool. I can tell you're a writer talking about that. That would definitely stick with me too. So I'm curious if you know that that was a really deep description of place and how it sort of factored into the story, but do you see yourself or neighbors or friends growing up in some of these characters? Because they're so richly developed. I certainly see... Um, myself and every and in all of these characters, I think um, even though none of them kind of superficially resemble me, I I feel very present in all of them. Of course, my emotional data is what I'm drawing on to evoke theirs. But I I find it very difficult to write about people that I really know. I think I can translate experiences from my own life or from others into fiction, but I feel like I'm violating someone if I ever um, really transcribe their story into into fiction, even with their permission, it just feels kind of invasive. But I will say that I was really good friends with some of my neighbors as a child and many of them. I mean, I grew up in a, a sort of lower, lower income neighborhoods and my family, you know, we didn't have much income, but I did have a lot of resources that my, like the people around me didn't have. And I was very, very aware of that. I think, you know, I had to caregivers that were present. I had access to education. My mother worked in school, so we got free tuition. And I think, you know, a lot of my friends were dealing with things like domestic violence and substance abuse and um, really extreme forms of intergenerational poverty that that I certainly noticed. And so the consequences of this kind of structural neglect were very, very visible in my community. But then also I went to these schools where, you know, they were Catholic schools. They were were more expensive. And so most of my peers there were from very, very different worlds. They were from the suburbs, gated communities, high income lives. Um, and it's it really felt like we were experiencing two completely different places. And then also I worked at a, a farmer's market. I worked at a bakery when I was in high school and a little bit into college. And we had a stand at the farmer's market. So I would go there twice a week, three times a week. And it was a really social environment. People would just stop and, and talk and 
want to tell you, you know, about their lives. And especially among, I think, the older people who who visited, a lot of them felt very lonely and kind of left behind by others. And so they would just sit and tell me their life stories. And all of those stories, none of them are replicated in the book, but that was very much the sort of emotional soundtrack that was present for me as I was as I was writing. I'm also curious about gender and how gender factored into the story. You have some very strong female characters and also some very strange female characters, right? And all of them are dealing with being a woman in various different ways. The main character, Blandine, is dealing with like an abusive relationship that she was in when she was very young, and she's still very young. And the mother character, Hope, is dealing with postpartum anxiety in a very intense way. And her husband is supportive, but he doesn't know how to be fully supportive. The way we see perspective and agency in these characters does feel new to me. And I wonder if it feels new to you and why you chose to invoke womanhood in those ways in the story. Yeah, I, it was. I think this is one of those subjects that I, I can't not write about because it so influences the way that I inhabit the world. You know, I'm the only girl in my family. I have three older brothers. And my dad was actually, he's a sociology, he's a sociologist who's, who's kind of interested in the socialization of masculinity, particularly violent masculinity. And so I grew up thinking a lot more consciously about masculinity. And um, my dad was always trying to rewire uh, those socialization patterns in my own household. So he was always encouraging my brothers to sort of express their emotions and cry and to not, you know, to be, to be thoughtful of others and all of this. And yet, so I don't think I really started to think about the socialization of femininity until very consciously until I was uh, in my 20s and I was, you know, maybe teens and starting to experience a lot of extreme forms of sexual aggression and sort of um, gendered expectations, gendered management of power. And then as um, the Me Too movement sort of exploded, uh, that was right around the time I was, I was beginning this book. And so it was making me reassess a lot of experiences like like so many women and you know, people of all genders, really, who are starting to reassess experiences they had had um, when they were younger. And one thing that really frustrated me about uh, growing up specifically within the Catholic Catholic communities in the Midwest, which were extremely patriarchal, obviously, was how limited I felt really both the socialization of masculinity and the socialization of femininity were. It was, it was as though we were just told, all of us were told that we could only express a few qualities and we could only fulfill a few roles. And I think this was specifically uh, frustrating to me as a woman, feeling like I was constantly, constantly reduced to my body and my appearance and male validation rather than uh, my my mind, my, my interests, my other qualities. And so it was a bit of wish fulfillment to write a young woman who was so intent on defining herself um, through her curiosity, her, her intellect, her mind, her interest, her activism. And it really kind of actively refused all of these efforts that the men around her are making to pull her into their lives as a peripheral character. She's she's insisting on being the protagonist of her life and she's insisting on defining herself on terms she can control and terms that seem valuable to her. Yeah, it's funny because that's sort of trending now as an idea, right? Main character energy. I see that here. I'm also curious about the multiple character structure of the book. It's very interesting how you use this line of the apartment building as a device to sort of meet all of these different people in different places in their lives. How'd you come up with the idea for that? And how do you think it operates in the book? Yeah, it was a few things at once. I think, um, first of all, I was living, I was living in an apartment building that was, uh, you know, the walls were very thin and I could, I could hear all these lives playing out around me. And, and I was so intensely curious about what was going on. So it was, again, it could maybe a form of wish fulfillment to actually um, examine each life uh, around, you know, within a building. But even as a child, that struck me very intensely, like living, you know, eight, I think my house was about nine feet away from the, the house next to mine. And I was friends with the girl who lived there. But I was always struck by how you could live in such close proximity to people and not really know anything about their lives, people across the street. And so... That was happening, but also I was, um, I was, I, do, have you ever heard of Building Stories by Chris Ware? It's this kind of, it's like a collection of comics, um, some of which don't even have any words, but you can read them, you can experience them in, in any order, and it's about the residents of this apartment building. And I found it so, so moving and so, it really activates your imagination in a kind of thrilling way. 
So that was really inspiring. And then I was really, really drawn to polyphonic fiction at the time. I was reading a ton of contemporary polyphonic fiction. And I loved the form because it felt so so much like an ecosystem where you could get lost. You were kind of trusting the reader to develop their own experience in this place. And uh, it was kind of like structured with a dream associative logic rather than a sort of straightforward beginning, middle, end momentum or traditional plot structure. Yeah. All of those reasons combined. I think I was also kind of trying to find a way to resist this pressure I felt through social media, through history, everything, to um, to be very sort of self-forward, to be persona forward. Um, mm-hmm. There's so much autofiction that I love, but I didn't feel like that was a form that I, I felt at home in as a writer. So this was a way to sort of reach toward a more collective narrative rather than narratives that reinforce the kind of rugged individual nuclear family American yeah. ideal. The book has gotten a lot of buzz. You know, it's really gotten a lot of critical acclaim and people are excited about you as an author. And I'm curious, given what you said just at the very beginning of our conversation where that woman was saying like, oh, did you turn the lights off when you left Indiana? How do you feel people are responding to the fact of the book as a story about the Midwest uh, and about these characters and these stories that we tend not to care about beyond the Midwest? As they sort of turn their attention towards you, do you feel that? Is it a dissonance or does it just sort of work? I mean, there's so many things. Like, First of all, I am just surprised. Like, <laughs> surprise is really an understatement. <laughs> I, I have so many friends who are writers, um, and I think I had extremely tempered expectations for what this was going to be like. I, I know so many. It's It's nearly impossible to make a living as a literary fiction writer, and it's very, very difficult to get published at all. So I thought just getting published was um, was my goal. And so the attention was extremely, extremely unexpected. I will say that I was most concerned about the reactions from people in the Midwest. I really wanted to make sure that I didn't violate. I I guess you can't really go about life like you you can't be a writer worrying about violating anyone's narratives about their place because you, you, there will always be someone who can find something to, you know, to pick a fight about in your work. But. Yeah, it makes sense to want something that feels true to like a majority though, right? Especially as you're telling those stories. Yeah, exactly. I I really didn't. And I think I did also want to resist any um, narratives that this was like the definitive voice of of anything, of anywhere, of anyone. I I didn't want to represent anyone but myself. This is just like one imagination that produced a narrative about a set of experiences that were really limited by my own, my own life. So I think, if anything, I really hope that this encourages more um, more fiction from from places that are neglected and from people who are, who are neglected. And I think in some ways what's odd is that even though the Midwest and specifically the, the Rust Belt is really underrepresented in art, it's kind of overrepresented in politics. It sort of seems to be the place that all these politicians like put on their phony accents to reach. Yeah, um, I, Iowa caucuses and exactly. stuff. Exactly. And yet the the person that they always seem to be addressing is like a white working class man. And I really wanted to insist that the Midwest is home to so many different people, not just that man. <laughs> and um, in fact, like it's more diverse than the U.S. is on average. And there are so many narratives that I could not tell as a white person that I hope uh, I hope people, politicians, artists, et cetera, start paying attention to. And sort of a follow up to that. As you move about the world and your L.A. life, do you feel like you're still bringing all those narratives, that sense of place coming from the Midwest with you? Is it still present for you? Yeah, I think you can never really escape your childhood, (laughs) Um, the most formative experiences of your life. And I think I find it very difficult. Like I started writing. I I found this to be true even uh, before I started writing The Rabbit Hutch, that I would write something that was ostensibly set in New York and then it would immediately get pulled back into the Midwest and um, the next thing that I am working on is divided into three novellas, and the first one definitely takes place in a city, a city like mine. But the next two won't, and I think that will present a new challenge. But even when I am writing about another place, um, I'm certainly always influenced by the concerns, the images, the yeah, the psychological landscape that developed for me there. Oh, yeah. And that was my next question. Your next project, is it also sort of using these themes of the Rust Belt? And is it moving in new directions with that? It's in the early phases, but it is a departure for me. The first, the first novella in it is a is sort of is about concerns that will be familiar, I think, to those who've read this book. But I, I'm trying to write more about 
I guess this project began for me when I was trying to think about this kind of toxic white nostalgia that is fueling so many mm. contemporary politicians. And so it, it, that's where it began. But I think it's kind of it's drifted toward quantum superposition and agriculture and a woman who's stalked by someone who saw her in a performance. So I, I think it everything will be, it'll be wandering a bit from from like these concerns. Novelist Tess Gunty in conversation with Violet Barron. Tess Gunty's novel, The Rabbit Hutch, which is set in Indiana, won the 2022 National Book Award for Fiction. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. If you like the show, you can review and rate us on Apple or Spotify and tell a friend. Okay, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up, but first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers. Avi Forrest is our associate producer. Our social media master is Jillian Blackburn. We get support from Aabon Binder, Mark Cella, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer, and we have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time for some found sound. That was Parking Garage with Trombone, recorded by Kate Young. Thanks, Kate. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Mm-hmm.